Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Sam Rust. He's a managing partner at LifeBridge Capital and has been actively involved with commercial real estate investing since 2017. Since that time, he's led the acquisition of over 1,500 units across Colorado and Idaho with value in excess of $400 million. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Sam. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Charles. So give us a little bit on a uh, background about yourself, both uh, personally and professionally, prior to getting involved with commercial real estate investing and, uh, and then syndications. Yeah, I grew up in Idaho in the Boise area on a family farm, a little hobby farm, about 40 acres, and spent my summers uh, growing hay, um, stacking uh, 150 tons or so every year by the 100-pound bale. So learned the value of hard work, sweat a lot. Um, after I graduated college, I moved to Salt Lake City in 2011 to work for a, an industrial automation business um, that designed and sold systems for large manufacturing plants, whether that's oil and gas, food and beverage, things of that nature. Went to Denver um, in 2014 and then started hearing about syndication in 2017 and uh, made a ton of sense to me. I had uh, some capital that I was looking to place and at the time wasn't planning to move out of the position I was in and more sales and business development, but uh, did my first syndication in 2018, a little 64 unit down in Colorado Springs. And it, uh, it went really well. It was very smooth and uh, started looking for a partner, found Whitney. I'm sure we'll get into more of this as yeah. we go along, but uh, um, kind of made the transition in 2019 to full-time commercial real estate. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. So currently I live back in the Boise area. We moved mm -hmm. back last year, my wife and I, we've got six kids and uh, number seven wow. on the way. So we've got a, a busy household. Wow. That's that. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so before uh, getting involved with that, uh, your first deal, how, why was, um, you know, why'd you guys actually, why'd you actually pick real estate as your investment vehicle? Because there's so many different things you can do as side hustles. Yeah. Uh, so in 2017, had this capital um, and I wanted to find an investment vehicle where I could use my skill set to directly affect the outcome. Um, so you, know, you start reading on various stock investing strategies or you know that was the very beginning of the crypto boom. 
Um, real estate is a huge area, um, obviously, and there's a lot of different strategies within that. And so I just started listening to podcasts, um, reading books, trying to be intentional, like what, what interests me and my skill sets were in like project management, relational development, um, and some statistical analysis. I'd done a lot of those things in my sales job. And as I was diving in, I was like, real estate makes a ton of sense, just broadly as an asset class, you know, real estate has created more wealth than any other single um, asset class in the world. Um, and the barriers to entry are quite low. Um, but there's real estate, which is a huge umbrella. Um, and then everybody says, well, you got to figure out what your niche is. Because if you just say, well, I want to invest in real estate, you're going to you know, have shiny object syndrome and run around from object to object and not really make progress. And so just started consuming a ton of material. Um, you know, this was in the heyday of bigger pockets, mm-hmm. um, right? As Brandon Turner and Josh Dorkin and their podcasts were, were really taking off. So that was a resource that I used, read a lot of different books on different strategies and just what, what made sense. I pursued doing some fix and flips, um, never landed a contract. I was working with some wholesalers and learned a little bit about that from the inside. But the more I learned, the less I wanted to do the fix and flip route. Um, And I had started hearing several different syndicators on a variety of different podcasts that started out as fix and flippers. And they always said, I wish we had gone to multifamily right away. Um, and the, the rationale behind that made a ton of sense to me. Um, the idea of buying into cash flowing assets, having, um, you know, room in your budget for R and M, which you often don't have if you're building a single family portfolio, um, the higher barriers to entry of multifamily, um, actually were attractive to me. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a, a little bit of a summary, but that's ultimately what led me into multifamily syndication and investing in that asset class specifically. So Sam, tell us about your firm now. I mean, how is it structured and um, what is your, your current investment criteria? So LifeBridge Capital is uh, managed by Whitney Sewell, um, who's the, the more famous, the, uh, the face of the enterprise as it were, um, and myself. Um, so we're the two managing partners. Um, we're a distributed company, so we have uh, about 10 people on the LifeBridge Capital side, um, and then we are vertically integrated with LifeBridge Management, and we've got about 50 people on that side of the business. So currently, as you alluded to in my intro, we've got about 1,500 units um, primarily in the Rockies. Um, you know, what as far as investment strategy moving forward or investment criteria, you know, we're looking for solid deals that pencil out to a, a high teen, low 20 gross IRR. Um, which is going to deliver a, you know, a mid to low teen IRR net to investors, um, and we're we're being a little bit more opportunistic these days. Um, mm-hmm. There's transaction volume is way down, um, primarily because of interest rates and um, sellers really s- sitting on the sidelines, not being motivated to transact, except in rare cases. Um, but we have partnered with developers over the years um, to buy some newer assets. And that's a strategy that um, continues to pay off. Um, and and so I think one of the areas that we're working on right now actually is an updated investment thesis. We're gradually shifting towards some markets in the Midwest, um, primarily, well, for a couple of reasons. One, 
just from a macroeconomic trend, believe that manufacturing is coming back to the United States, that we're seeing a reshoring of industry, that a lot of that industry is going to be in the Midwest because of labor availability, land availability, infrastructure availability, primarily around transportation and logistics um, and power and all those other things. So markets like uh, Columbus, Ohio, or Des Moines, Iowa, or Kansas City, uh, Missouri, you know, areas where maybe cap rates didn't fall quite as far as they did in some of the sexier markets in the Southeast and the Rockies. Yeah. Um, but they also didn't have the same development pipeline that some of those markets have had. Um, and they're just overall, maybe a little bit more stable. Um, and so we're kind of trying to level up our asset class that we're buying into in those markets. Um, and continue to find those deals that that pencil out um, based on reasonable underwriting expectations. So, Sam, you, you spoke a little bit about um, you and Whitney and um, how I mean, how important are partnerships when you're starting to invest into larger apartment complexes versus like you were talking where uh, previously um, thinking about doing flips and stuff like this, where it's usually just one person that you only need for that. Yeah. Um, Partnerships are vital, um, especially here in, in investing in multifamily. There's so many moving parts um, that doing it by yourself, it's, I would say it's impossible to do it at scale and do it yeah. well. Um, right. And, and at scale is basically anything beyond like two or three deals mm-hmm. <laughs> that are fairly yeah. small. There's just so many different aspects to keep track of. Um, so Whitney and I um, divide responsibilities pretty cleanly. He's primarily in charge of internal business operations and capital raising. And I'm in charge of acquisitions and asset management. Um, that fits our skill sets really well. Um, and it's a, we, we are in very close contact. I think one of the things that's important when evaluating a partner is, do you like the person? Do you have complementary skill sets? Do you have similar vision? You know, those base level um, building blocks to any relationship, but especially for a partnership, it's so important that you have alignment and unity around goals and how you're going to achieve those goals. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the f- sayings I, I bring up a lot is the only ship that doesn't sail is a partnership. Um, and unfortunately that's, it's very true. Yeah. Um, partnerships founder all the time. Um, and it can, it can be completely destructive. Um, and so doing your due diligence, not being in a rush um, to partner, but evaluating it and and putting intentional effort into identifying that person or persons that will help you get to where you want to go. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. I think one of the big things with the partnership is that uh, people don't uh, carry their own weight. You know what I mean? And I'll hear this when people speak to me about they want to invest in real estate and it's right away, even if it's like a small multi, you know what I mean? And they're like, oh, I want to, you know, I want to partner myself. I want to partner with someone and they don't have any experience either. And they've got a job and I have a job. It's just, it's kind of a recipe for disaster. You know what I mean? Because you're not aligned, um, obviously complementary skill sets, but especially when you're in syndication and there's not just buying the property and managing it or asset management, you're also dealing with investors, which are a huge part of the business, obviously, and raising money for those deals. But um, so tell us a little bit, uh, just like as we kind of wrap up on this with the partner, but like you guys met, you and Whitney, I mean, how did you guys connect initially? And then how did you, you know, I guess, lack of a better word, like, how'd you guys date before actually getting into business? Because this is 
you can find someone at a conference that's all like, you know, jazzed up, ready to go. And then you're actually doing deals and you don't heal back, hear back from people and stuff like this. So how did you guys get that to actually like to work together? Yeah. So I did not go through a coaching program or a mentoring program. Yeah. I kind of cobbled together my own education mm-hmm. in the multifamily space, at least to get started. Um, and so in late 2018, I had done my first syndication um, and I decided, you know, I think, I think I need to explore switching careers, but I know I'm going to need a partner. I should probably go to a real estate conference. I had been exposed to a couple of the larger um, multifamily training platforms in the space. Yeah. And I knew I didn't want to go to one of those conferences. Um, and, and those conferences serve a lot of people very well, so I don't want to denigrate yeah. them. Um, but I wanted to go to more of an operators conference um, where I could meet people who were actually doing deals you know, it was more state of the market, economic outlook, things of that nature, and less of, hey, sign up for our coaching program and we'll make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. So to that end, at the time I was living in Denver and uh, heard about the best ever conference um, put on by Joe Fairless and uh, sounded like the exact kind of conference I wanted to go to. It was in my backyard. I was like, this would be a great place. And so signed up for that conference, February, 2019, um, ended up being introduced to Whitney through a mutual acquaintance um, we shared a couple of meals together at the conference and he actually approached me at the end of the conference and said, Hey, I, I would love to explore the idea of a partnership. You know, he had obviously started his podcast and was becoming more well-known in the space and had had people approaching him, but he hadn't found the right fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up taking him home that night. He had a red eye flight at the end of the conference. I took him to my home so he could meet my wife. Um, at like 1030 that night, dropped him off for his red eye. And then uh, the four of us, so Whitney and Chelsea, his spouse and Becca and I um, spent a lot of time over the next couple of weeks um, on Zoom, just talking to to each other, getting to know each other, um, asking all the the biographical questions, trying to get a sense of who these people were. Um, And at the time, I also was in the final stages of negotiating a contract to purchase my second deal. And we decided to do a trial partnership on that deal alone. Um, I think there's, you, you want to get a sense of the person, um, but ultimately you need to see how you work together. Um, and so we just decided, hey, we've got this deal. This is a perfect opportunity. There's no expectation beyond this, but let's just dive in and see if we, uh, if we really work together as well as we think we might. And um, it was apparent very quickly that we worked well together, complementary skill sets, um, and we made the decision right after closing that deal um, to partner together um, and move forward under the LifeBridge Capital banner. Yeah, the trial deal is a great, a great method of done because I've done it with uh, partners before, and um, not that anything negative has happened, but you the trial deal kind of tells people how serious you are and. Um, not that people are doing not doing what they said they were going to do, but it's really how is this person going to assist our company? And I learned years back, it's uh, one of the things is that when you're looking for a partner, you don't want a partner that you actually have to train, right? You want a partner that's what their goal is going to be or what their role is going to be, let's say, in the firm, they actually know what to do. Right. And then you can focus on what you're doing. So you're not training someone that's not like a partner. You know what I mean? You got to be focusing on what you're doing and they have to be focused on what they're doing. And the trial runner that you're on the same page is a great way of doing it before really jumping and jumping in and, you know, both feet and kind of uh, 
doing everything from there on out. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. Figuring that out on the front side, are you equally yoked is very important. Mm -hmm. And then I think talking about expectations and just then taking the time to invest in that relationship. I, yeah. I've seen a lot of folks who get into a partnership that probably could have worked, um, but they get focused on their own silo and kind of running with their vision and they're not building something cohesively and inevitably you just drift apart. And before you know it, you're, you're not equally yoked. You don't have the same vision and it's time to dissolve and, and go back to square one. Yeah. Interesting. So when you're making the transition into becoming a full-time real estate investor, how did that work with what you were doing with, were you still, when you're doing your first few deals, you were working full-time and then you made the plunge into going full-time into real estate or did you just go right in? I mean, how did you guys do it? Um, how did you set up yourself? Because, you know, there's expenses, living expenses, the whole thing that goes with it before you're able to, you know, follow your dream into full-time real estate investing. Yeah, we we did, or my, I did two deals prior to going full-time. Um, the first deal we took no fees um, and it was kind of, you know, investors, you know, I understand that this, I'm new at this, um, you know, we're going to give you better splits, no fees. Um, and you're paying for my education, right. Uh, in some senses. Um, and the second deal we did charge fees um, and there was, we had enough of a runway personally to be able to fund uh, the household um, while we went and tried to find that next deal. So it was, you know, we didn't have the cash flow coming in to yeah. uh, replace what I was making in my previous job. Um, and so for the first year from 2018 through to like August of 2019, um, I was working full time um, and then uh, then left to, to pursue real estate full time in August of 2019. So I, I think that that's a understanding your tolerance for risk is really important and getting into any new endeavor. This isn't real estate specific, but um, as a society, we're conditioned to avoid risk at all costs. Um, and, but often we're trading the known risk for unknown risk or, or opportunity cost. Um, and so broadly, I think when you're younger, um, you have more room to take those riskier bets. And, and I think generally, especially if one is entrepreneurially inclined, we should be pushing ourselves and, and, and seeking to be wise, but also to push our boundaries, push our limits um, and see what's on the other side. Yeah. And with any situation like that, there's ways of minimizing your downside, minimizing your risk, um, preparing for that, uh, say that window where you don't have the consistent cash flow. Yeah, exactly. So Sam, uh, a lot of what you do, as I understand at LifeBridge is you're working with, uh, you're doing asset management, you're reviewing deals, and uh, a big part of reviewing deals and new deals that are coming in is relationships with brokers. And this is something kind of, I mean, there's, you, you have deals that come in, you have money, and you've got to make sure both of those plates uh, are spinning, right, to have to be successful. How have you built lasting broker relationships over the years of uh, dealing with the 100 plus unit properties? Yeah, it, it, there's it, brokers are very important. Um, if you're buying deals that are 100 units or more in primary or secondary markets, most deals are transacting through a broker. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're making it to market, um, but brokers 
you know, in there's tons of brokers in most of these markets that are spending their days getting to know existing owners, cultivating those relationships, and they're going to control the deal flow. And so it's it's really important to get to know those brokers, get to know those power players, um, and get to a position where they will call you when they have deals um, and you know, be able to transact. There's there's this idea maybe back when I was getting started in 2018, 2019, um, that hey, you got to find the off-market deal. And, and off-market is definitely sexy. And when you can find it, it's fantastic. Um, but a lot of deals, there's just there's a limited number of them. And most of the time, an off-market deal is an on-market deal mm-hmm. that just never made it onto LoopNet or never made yeah. it onto the corporate website. But it the true off-market deal is very few and far between. So getting to know brokers, really important. I started out um, by just looking at LoopNet. I trained myself on LoopNet, trying to figure out why are deals here. Um, so I underwrote 100 plus deals on LoopNet in early 2018 as I was building out my own model not because my model was fantastic, but just I figured I needed to know the math really, really well for underwriting deals. And so when it came time, when I felt like I could evaluate deals at a basic level, um, I just looked at all the the deals that I had underwritten and kind of who were the the most active brokers on LoopNet would go look at those brokerage teams and try to find brokers that were in my age bracket that had won some sort of award. Um, That was kind of my... A selection criteria, figuring that they had lasted long enough where they actually had a little bit of a track record. They had done some deals, but being the same age, they probably would be more willing to entertain a call from somebody who's newer um, and uh, are still looking to build their relationship portfolio. And so, um, you know, I, I think from there, it's about being very responsive. I mean, it's the basics of building any relationship. Do what you say you're going to do. Set clear expectations on what you can transact on, what you are interested in, and then look for ways to drive value. Um, the broker that I ended up buying my first two deals through um, sent me a couple of honestly crap deals um, yeah. when we first started talking. Um, but one of them was a small, like 30 unit in a mountain town. And, and my approach was in the early days of underwriting, you know, does this deal work? And the answer was always no on LoopNet or the, the early deals. Um, and then once we got to know how could this deal work? And on that deal in particular, it's like, this deal could work if you could Airbnb the units. And so I had asked the broker, can you Airbnb? He didn't know. So I went ahead and I wasn't interested in buying this as an Airbnb, but I went and did the research, called the local jurisdiction, figured out that you could get permits for a certain percentage of the units and did a little bit of research on what you could reasonably expect from an income perspective, and then provided all of that information back to the broker and said, hey, this doesn't fit my buy box. I told you I wanted you know, 75 units plus um, of a value add deal. This is 30 units new in a mountain town. But along the way here, you know, here's what you could do. And maybe this information would be useful for other buyers. Um, The broker really appreciated that. um, And that led, that was one of several things that led to us getting an opportunity at our first deal um, and, and subsequent deals therein. So again, the basics of relationship building, doing what you say you're doing, providing value are super important. Yeah. Most people, uh, I put a lot of brokers on the show here and most people, um, don't respond to brokers. They'll send a deal and they never respond to them. So how do you put yourself ahead of the majority of the people that are getting that email or that deal is just a response. 
you know what I mean, of saying why it doesn't work for you. And I've done it several times and responded, and even with just like short bullet points. And when you do it, you are moved to the top of the pile for future deals because people are like, oh, this guy actually responds, number one. And this actually makes sense. And some of the stuff I already knew because, you know, it's my deal, uh, you know, but uh, this is very good. So I think that's a very, a very wise way of going about. The other way is like with the Lupna, as you said, Lupna is even though people, especially in those coaching programs and stuff, people always are told that that's where deals go to die. But the amount of information and wealth of information on LoopNet is uh, startling. So you're finding brokers that are selling exactly the type of properties you want, maybe not the specific deal you want, but um, you can contact them and they'll tell you, you, I mean, I've done it before and they'll tell you, majority of them will tell you property managers that they work with. They tell you all the different things about it. And you can, even if you're not even buying the deal or putting an offer in it or asking for financials on that particular deal, they will tell you everything. You can build a Rolodex just from those brokers because it's exactly what you want to be buying. And they they specialize, obviously, in that space. And that's why they're listing deals on LoopNet. So a lot of great information, even if the deals aren't the best. Yeah. And I would also say, don't call a broker and ask to be put on his off-market list and where are your eight cap deals? <laughs> um, that is the fastest way to show that A, you do not know what you're talking about um, and B, you will get blacklisted um, because brokers generally, they have a lot of patience for people who are honest about what they know, um, mm -hmm. don't pretend to be something that they're not and are are obviously putting the work in. So you don't have to know everything, but if you pretend to know everything or you you just assume that there's this list with all these amazing, juicy off-market deals, it just doesn't work that way and it just shows ignorance. So don't do that. Yeah, the other thing too is that you have a lot of people that are coming, as you said, uh, from wholesaling or flipping and are making their way into multifamily. And you have people that are like searching deals as a wholesaler, and they're used to finding deals that are 40% under market or 50% on market. You have to understand the, the larger the deal, the more money that's involved, the more zeros, majority of the time, the more sophisticated, the owner, the seller. Um, and they're obviously getting counsel from the uh, from the broker on what they should do with it. So it's not where you're going to come in and say, hey, you haven't paid your property taxes, so I can offer you 50% of the dollar. It's really, you know, where are we going to go? How can we work the deal? Or how can I take this deal that, uh, let's say, is a good price or good offer because there's a lot of work we can do to it to add rents? That's really how you have to be looking at it, not where you're going to come in and say, oh, I want the off-market, like you said, that are 40% under market. It's just... They're not going to be there because these people are more, more sophisticated sellers. Yeah. Yeah. It's a more efficient market. And the more efficient a market is, the, the less likely that you're going to find true alpha on the buy. Now, finding alpha on the buy is important. And that's why we search through so many deals to find it. But it's, you know, it's 50 basis points of IRR here and 100 basis points yeah. over here. And if you're lucky, maybe 300 over here. Um, but it's, the holy grail of that 40 to 50%, which you can find in single family, it's very uncommon. Um, I would say that we, I mean, we've bought 15 deals. Um, and I think that we've paid, you know, within, I'll say within 8% of market value on every deal. Um, and, and that's, that's a little bit of, 
you know, just thumb to the wind. Um, appraisals are notorious for coming in just right above your price. Um, so, you know, that's not always the best indicator, but, you know, we've, we've bought a couple of off-market deals, but I don't think they would have traded for more than 5% um, of what we had paid. So it wasn't that, it's what what's your overall business plan and how are you driving the value and are you investing in an area that's growing? You know, other macro and micro trends, um, yeah, finding 20% equity day of closing is very, very rare. Yeah. And as we move on from this, I just had one thing is that I was speaking to an investor, a uh, seasoned investor, and he would tell me every time he buys property, he thinks he's overpaying for it. And I I get that on some deals, and uh, but it's something that, and I'm like, oh, this is just common then, you know what I mean? But it's also, you're buying for not just, uh, it's, a, it's a much different business plan than just, hey, we're buying a house for $50,000 that's going to sell for a hundred and we're going to put 25,000 into it. It's a, it's a different business plan. Like you said of eking out IRR with inefficiencies with the property. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so Sam, you're searching and searching through hundreds of deals to find one that pencils, uh, I would imagine in most scenarios, like high level, what are things that you really want to see at a property? And like, what are some maybe red flags that are, what you're maybe looking for or looking not to have uh, before you go even into hitting spreadsheets and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that is going to depend on how well you know a market and mm. you know exactly what type of product you're chasing. The answer is a little bit different if it's value add versus buying directly from a developer at TCO. Um, you know, there's there's different things that apply. Broadly, what I do though, when you're looking at a, a decent volume of deals, is I'll just take the broker's assumptions, take them literally, and run them through my model. I can do that in about eight minutes. Um, and if it just assuming that the broker's assessments are accurate, if I can get to, you know, a high teen gross, then I'll dive in. Um, and, and realistically these days, maybe if I got to a mid teen gross, I would dive in a little bit further, but if I'm in like single digits IRR and that's with broker assumptions yeah. that we all know are not accurate, um, that deals D DOA. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's time to set that aside and, and move on to the next one. Um, as far as, you know, if you peel back the layer of the onion a little bit further, assuming that you can make that work, you know, then it's diving into that comp set and really, figuring out what is the business plan here? You know, if we're going to do a value add program, you know, how much is it going to cost? That's a little bit easier. There's some rules of thumb that you can use that'll get you in the ballpark, but what kind of rent growth can you truly drive? Um, and then when you're looking at financials, you know, what does, I, I like to look past, you know, the T, even the T12, if you can, and see, you know, what does this property look like historically over the last three years? Um, most sellers, as you mentioned earlier, are sophisticated and they know they didn't just decide one day to list this property. They were preparing for a while. And so they're cleaning their financials. They're doing everything they can to present it in the best possible light. That's their job. Um, but it's your job as the buyer to figure out, okay, where have they padded things or, or where are things maybe a little bit better than they seem? And so delinquency reports become very important, um, you know, figuring out what, if you look at a rent roll, did they have a ton of people move in over the last 30 to 90 days? Um, you know, if that's the case, you're going to want to look at those leases and those lease files and see, 
uh, did, did they qualify or were they just moving bodies in to have heads on beds? Um, you know, those are the types of questions that you, you want to have rolling in the back of your mind as you're, you're diving in a little bit further. Oh, those are great. Those are some great points. Um, so Sam, what would you say are some common mistakes, uh, that you might see real estate investors make over your career? Not, um, capitalizing deals well enough. Mm. Um, I knew that going in, uh, that's, I mean, you, you ask most people multifamily, what, what do you see? And it's either they put floating rate debt on, um, or they didn't capitalize deals well enough. Um, and transparently we've had a deal that we didn't capitalize well enough the front side we thought we had. Um, and we blew a couple of boilers within three days of each other and had one other hot water transmission line issue and boom, you're, you, you, you eat into your reserves and you, you wish that you had had another hundred thousand dollars. You know, the difference of, I'll just say yeah, if on like a $10 million equity check, so a $40 million deal or a $35 million deal, which is a pretty typical size, $250,000, not going to make that much of a difference on the returns. Um, but it could make all the difference in the world when it comes to investing in the property, riding out some of those curves. So that's for the operator. For limited partners, um, I think the mistakes that I see are um, maybe overly rosy expectations. Um, we have we started at LifeBridge Capital at a phenomenal moment in the real estate cycle. You know, we had compressing cap rates, we had. Uh, dropping interest rates. Um, and it was a feeding frenzy through 2021. Um, and that led to a lot of people overperforming on deals. We were the beneficiaries of that. Um, but now we're at a different point in the cycle. And we're seeing, depending on your debt structure, some deals are struggling um, across the industry. You know, generally values have dropped 15, 20%. Um, and so I think understanding as a limited partner, that the specifics, you know, every deck that I've ever seen has some sort of cash on cash return projection, um, usually year by year, um, you know, maybe starting, we'll just round, but maybe starting at 5% in year one and getting up to 10% in year five, something like that. And it's a fairly linear progression. And generally, we all underwrite somewhat linearly. Um, it, it's hard to do it any other way because you're just making more and more suppositions. Mm -hmm. But something that we tell our investors often is, this is our estimate. The only guarantee that I can give you is that this is going to be inaccurate. And, and you really want to buy into the business plan as a whole, not necessarily the specifics of a cash on cash return, you know, down to the, the 10th of a percent. Um, and, and really evaluate deals at that level um, and the difference, the difference between an 8% average cash on cash and 7% is not significant. Um, but the business plan behind that is, um, and I just really encourage limited partners, folks who are looking to place capital, make sure that you're investing with operators that you trust to do the right thing, even in hard times, um, and in well-located assets, um, that will preserve equity and be well positioned for the next real estate cycle. Um, you know, I think there's going to be tremendous buying opportunities over the next 12 to 18 months. Um, I, I really continue to believe in multifamily as an asset class, uh, but but you, as always, you're just going to have to exercise caution and make sure that you're buying into those quality deals. 
Yeah, I think that's a great, some great points there. Um, the other thing is those well-located, um, good quality deals are going to be the ones that are going to be uh, in demand in all parts of the market cycle. You know, I mean, there's still going to be buyers looking for your good assets that you bought, even uh, in a down cycle, because they want to buy them, they want to add them to their portfolio. And, you know, I think real estate investors, especially um, when you're getting into larger commercial deals, um, they will pay for something that they really want. That's a good prop property and they'll overpay. We have something like that going on right now with the property we're selling and we're selling it definitely more than what it's worth. But the investor loves the area, the neighborhood. They purchased there before, they purchased from us before, and they want to, uh, you know, buy again. So it's something that uh, it happens. And if you, that's really how you transact in commercial. You know what I mean? It's buying stuff that's going to be there for the long term, buying quality assets. Um, so Sam, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, what what do you think are some of the main factors that have contributed to your success over the years? Um. I think the the biggest factor um, ultimately is um, I'm a Christian, the favor of the Lord. Um, I think that that's that's really important. There's there's a sense in which we all make plans and we try to to see into the future, um, but ultimately none of us yeah. controls the future. Yeah. And so I, I want to acknowledge that. Um, I think beyond that, love of learning um, that was instilled in me from an early age by my parents. I was homeschooled growing up. Um, graduated college at 17 um, through combining high school and college. And, and that, that love of learning is probably the single biggest thing that has led to success is just always being curious, asking why, um, you know, diving into real estate in the first place was because I was curious. Um, and when you love learning and you know how to learn, it unlocks so many opportunities um, for you throughout your life and not just in business, but uh, in all aspects. Well, great. So how can our listeners learn more about uh, you and your business, LifeBridge? Yeah, folks want to check us out online. It's just lifebridgecapital.com. Um, I have a, a Twitter account that I'm somewhat active on. So at Sam Rust, if you're on Twitter, there's a growing real estate community there. Lots of great content shared in the, the town hall of our time. So I'd encourage folks to, to check us out over there. Um, and we have a weekly newsletter um, through LifeBridge Capital if folks are interested. Well, thanks so much for coming on today, Sam, and uh, looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future. Fantastic. Thanks, Charles. Have a great rest of your day. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.